So we are in 2 Timothy again this week, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 18. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered in Ephesus." So here there's kind of two themes that are working together in this text. One theme that's a little under the surface is the theme of culture, the culture in which they were living. And draw that particularly from the word shame. In this text, he's dealing with suffering. Our other theme, that's the dominant theme, that's the easily visible theme. But in order to understand what he's saying about suffering, we also have to understand what he's saying about shame. Now, our culture is slightly different. Well, it's different in a lot of ways, but our culture is different particularly in how we deal with shame as a society. In the ancient Middle East, shame and honor were big deals in the culture of the day. In our culture, that's not such a big deal. In fact, our culture almost glories in shame and doing something that is against the norms of our culture, often we think that just shows this is an independent thinker. This is a free spirit. This is someone who just marches to the beat of their own drum. And those words, although sometimes we can use them negatively, are often used positively. They're visionaries. They're ahead of their time. They're people who exist outside of the cultural norms. And in our culture, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But culture affects how we think. And the culture of the New Testament, being outside the cultural norms, was a problem. And so here, he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't worry what the world around you thinks about your suffering. It's interesting because if I'm talking about suffering, I'd be more focused on just enduring the suffering because I don't like suffering. But Paul hones in on a specific aspect of suffering, the fact that suffering brings about shame. Well, what is culture? How does culture affect us? It affects the way our world thinks, how we view the events that take place. People from different cultures are going to look at various activities in a very different way. One subculture might come into our church service 
and be really offended by how loosey-goosey we are, by how lightly we take our liturgy, our worship service. I have friends who go to churches which practice exclusive psalmody, exclusive unaccompanied psalmody. When they come to church together, they will only sing the specifically written words of God, so they will only sing the psalms, and they won't use any instruments. And they might come into a church like ours and think, wow, these guys are crazy. They're going all over the place. They're singing all these different songs. They're singing new songs. They're singing old songs. And their culture would come into our church service and be a little put off. On the flip side, you might be talking to someone. You might have a friend who comes from a more charismatic background. And they come into our church and they're like, wow, are these people sleepwalking at church? What's going on here? And so both cultures will look at the same thing and come away with a completely different perspective. In Paul's encouragement to Timothy, he's looking at suffering and he's thinking, how is your culture going to view suffering? Well, at that point, it's shameful. Shameful. We get culture from many sources. Regionally, where we grew up, the type of family that we grew up in, the type of media that we consumed as a child, the type of media that we consume today, the way we were educated, and all of this culture can change our value systems. Different people have these different cultural values. Some cultures really value hard work. So that workaholic, the person who's up at the crack of dawn and comes home after sundown and works all day and works hard, some of us might look at that person and say, that's the way it ought to be. They're working hard. On the flip side, some of us might have a culture that says that family is so important that we would look at a person who's working like that and we'd say, wow, that's really terrible. They're a workaholic. And two people looking at the same person might come to a different conclusion. We have different cultural values about food. We had family and from out of state, from New York. New York has a very different view of food than Wisconsin does. Here, the best restaurant in Sheboygan is obviously the restaurant that gives you the biggest portion, right? That's kind of the Wisconsin cultural value. And also, the most fried items is a contributing factor. But we bring in our family from New York, and I was trying to think of where to go to dinner. We were up in Green Bay, and I was going to take them to Kroll's. I don't know if you know Kroll's. It's kind of like your typical Sheboygan hard roll burger place where it might be butter, it might be mayo. You're not quite sure what's on the bun. And I was going to take them. I'm like, you know, should maybe ease them in a little bit. We'll go Culver's instead. Kroll's is just too Wisconsin for my New York family because we have these different values that come from the culture we grow up in. We have different values about expenses. What is wise to spend money on? What is foolish to spend money on? Leisure, what kind of entertainment? Some of you go hunting. I think that's insane. But others of you, you really, really like it. We have all these different cultural values that we bring to the table. And here, in Timothy's life, one of those cultural values was suffering equals shame. If you are suffering, it is a sign that you are not successful. Our values are sometimes good and bad. Our culture is different from Timothy's, but it is no less dangerous. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy to deal with suffering, he's going to get right to the root of Timothy's problem. 
He's not going to give him strategies for just dealing with suffering today. He's going to go right to the core and say, here is how a different worldview, here is how a different culture, a different way of looking at the world is going to allow you to suffer and suffer well. Timothy is going to be tempted by his culture to say, suffering is shameful, so I will avoid suffering. Following culture is always easy and comfortable. You can blend in. You don't stand out. People aren't going to resist you. They're not going to have a problem with you. You just kind of fly under the radar. Makes me think an extreme example of Stalin's Russia. You did not want to be noticed in Stalin's Russia. Being noticed ended in a train trip to Siberia. So you try to just not stick out. Just blend in. Don't be counter-cultural, because following culture is easy and comfortable. Faith demands that we resist culture when it's wrong and live counter-cultural lives which look beyond what the world around us is saying. And that will invariably result in suffering. If we are opposing the system of the world, the world will not like it. So Paul calls Timothy to suffer. Verse number 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What's that therefore referring us back to? The previous verse where it says, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. So he says, knowing what God has been working in you through the Spirit... Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So here, in the particular cultural setting of Timothy's life, there is this tie between shame and between suffering. Where do we experience shame? It's a common emotion. We've all experienced it at various times. Just talking to one of you and as we were watching the video about Central African Baptist College and hearing the testimony of some of these men who are going to 100% Muslim cultures. They're going to 100% Muslim areas. I'm listening to that video and my thought is this guy is going to be a martyr. I wonder when it will happen. And we might experience some shame at that point. We see, look at the courage of another Christian facing suffering. So we might experience shame. I'd say that is a good form of shame. The shame that says, my way of thinking is not in line with what God has declared. We might experience shame because of failure. Maybe at work, you're missing a deadline, but you've done your absolute best and it just did not happen. We might still feel shame. But on the flip side, it can also be a good thing at work when we miss a deadline because we didn't do our job well. We failed and we knew it. We didn't do our best. And so we feel shame. It has good and bad 
causes. It has good and bad reasons that maybe it should push us to change or maybe it's just us punishing ourselves for things that we think we might have done wrong. We experience shame because we are inappropriate at times. Like if you go to a wedding wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt, you ought to feel shame in that situation. There is a decorum, there is a respect that is given to the people who are getting married. And so we might experience shame because we're being inappropriate, because we're breaking cultural norms. We might experience shame because of sin. An activity that we had hoped would remain a secret becomes public. Because we know that we failed. We know that we should have done better. We're angry. We're bitter. We're complaining. We're lazy. Whatever spiritual sinful failure it is, we know we should have done better. The goodness or badness of shame is based on the cause of that shame. So if shame is a good type of shame, it's because we have done something we ought to be ashamed of. We should feel a degree of shame because of our sinfulness. We should feel a degree of shame because of our laziness. We should feel shame in those situations. That is a good variety of shame. The bad variety of shame comes when we are ashamed of things that we should not be ashamed of. And so when Paul is talking to Timothy about feeling that shame that comes from going against the cultural norms, feeling that shame that comes from suffering... His encouragement to him is to get to the root of the shame. Is it good shame or is it bad shame? Timothy is tempted to be ashamed of what? He's tempted to be ashamed of the suffering of Paul. Timothy's tempted to be ashamed because suffering could show that he's failing. If you're a pastor and you're trying to reach your community, if your community is persecuting you back, that means you haven't reached your community, right? It means that they haven't believed the gospel. So even the fact that he's suffering means that he's not being as successful as he would like in his ministry. So he might feel shame. It's a sign of being rejected by the culture. He's suffering. He's being persecuted. Paul's being persecuted. Why? Because he's not just going along like a good Roman citizen. He's got to get his nose into all sorts of trouble. He's got to swim against the current. And so, it results in suffering. And most people don't want to be outsiders. And so Timothy, as he sees Paul suffering, as he suffers himself, he feels the shame of his culture's pressure on him. So how does Paul encourage him to deal with that shame? Since the goodness or badness of shame is an outgrowth of the source of that shame, the way Paul deals with Timothy's shame is by turning him to the reason why he might feel ashamed. Verse number 8. Share in suffering for. What's the reason? What's the cause? What's the purpose? The gospel by the power of God. So he's not saying, Timothy, just share in suffering because suffering is inherently good. He says, share in suffering for the gospel. The good news of what Christ has done. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then Paul goes on one of his sanctified rabbit trails. He's talking about suffering, but now we are going to get three verses of just straight up gospel proclamation and praise. Paul can't help himself. 
It's like he could just say, share in suffering for the gospel and then move on. No, he's going to expound on that. What is the gospel? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So he says, share in suffering for the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? It's the power of God where he has reached out and saved us, not because of our good works, but because of his own purpose from before time began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel has come according to God's purpose of grace, not by our works, but by his own will. And what is that gospel? It is manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus comes to earth. He appears, God himself dwelling among us. And what does he do? He abolishes death and brings life and immortality to light. So Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the power of God come to earth. He not only abolishes death, he also provides life. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So Paul says this happened. This happened. The power of God was made manifest through the gospel of Jesus Christ who comes to earth, who abolishes death and brings life to light. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel which I am appointed to be a preacher of, a proclaimer of. I am supposed to tell the world about the gospel. And this is why I suffer. Is there anything shameful in 2 Timothy chapter 1, second half of verse 8 through the beginning of verse 12? Is there anything worthy of being ashamed of? That God himself has broken into creation? That God himself has come in the flesh? That God himself, by his holy purposes, has called us? That God himself has put death to death and brought life to life? Is there anything shameful in that, Paul says? No! This is not something to be ashamed of. There are times when you experience shame, and you should. But when you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus bringing life to life and putting death to death, that is not something to be ashamed of. Paul says, that's why I suffer. Because the reason for my suffering is worth suffering for. The gospel motivates Paul's suffering. So the result is, Paul is appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. He suffers, but... When he suffers, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. So when Paul is facing suffering for the gospel, he can do it because he knows what God has done, he knows what God is doing, and he knows what God will do. God has brought his grace into the world through Christ. God is able to keep me as I endure until that day. Another theme we're going to see picked up through 2 Timothy, that day, the appointed time. There is an end to the suffering. 
Paul wants to remind Timothy, you suffer now, but you suffer because that day is coming. And in that day, you won't be suffering anymore. So you suffer in faith. And you can put yourself in Timothy's shoes or put yourself in Paul's shoes. And as you are facing persecution, this letter likely written just months before Paul dies. This is the last letter he writes. And put yourself in his shoes. He is in prison. This is a hard imprisonment. He's struggling. He's hurting physically, he's lonely, he's been abandoned, and he's suffering. And you can imagine what goes through his head. If I just recant, if I just turn my back on this gospel, I don't have to suffer. And he knows that. And he knows that there is hope for himself in this earth. But how does he resist that hope in this earth? By saying, I know whom I've believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able. I know what God will do. And so while Paul feels the chains on his wrists, a very real pain, when he feels the cold in his bones, a deep discomfort, he is an older man at this point. He's not a young man. He's in prison. He's in chains. He's in bonds. He is alone. And he feels all of these very real and very painful trials. But there's something he feels with even greater confidence than the trials which his five senses tell him about. And that is the confidence he has that God is able to bring to completion what he has begun in Paul. He knows he's suffering. He knows the pain he's feeling. He knows the loneliness he's feeling. But he knows with even greater assurance who he's believed. He's convinced that he is able to guard until that day what had been entrusted to him. He suffers, but he suffers with confidence. His confidence is not the Roman legal system which will deliver him. His confidence is not his friends that will make him feel better. He's been abandoned by them. His confidence is not that if he just works hard enough, he can persuade people and they will let him go. His confidence is not an up-and-coming political movement in Rome that will dethrone Nero and change the whole culture's view of the gospel. His confidence is not anything that happens on this earth. When he is suffering, he suffers and he endures, not because he thinks he can find the way out of suffering, but because he knows that God has already sent His Son to bring death to death and life to life. And that confidence that He rests securely in enables Him to endure the real suffering that He experiences. Christians can suffer well because we know the end. And we know the goodness of God which works towards that end. Paul's confidence is in the gospel. In our lives, it is so easy for us to find our confidence in a million different things. When we are beaten down, we look for hope. Maybe if I can get a better job that makes more money, this trial will go away. Maybe if I work harder and get better at what I do, this trial will go away. Maybe if I unlock the five secrets to parenting, the trial of my children misbehaving will go away. Maybe if I do this, or if I do that, or I do this, or I do that, the trials and suffering I experience will go away. Paul says, no. Your confidence when you are suffering on this earth is found only in the one in whom you have believed and the one who is able to keep you and the one who is able to keep that which you have been entrusted to do. 
Christians suffer well when our confidence is in God, not in anything that we can do. So, what should Timothy do to suffer well? Verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This word pattern, it's also like a prototype, an example. You have Paul's life, Paul's life of suffering. He turns to Timothy and says, see how I've suffered? You do what I did. Follow after me. Follow the pattern. Specifically, the pattern of the sound words which Timothy had heard from Paul. That pattern of sound words refers to the writings of Paul, the teachings of Paul. I'd also argue that it would include the sound words on which Paul expounded, so the Old Testament, the words of Jesus himself, all the things that Paul has taught to Timothy. He says, be faithful to the teaching I have given you. Follow the pattern. Follow the gospel. This isn't an antidote to suffering. This isn't a way out of suffering. This is a way into suffering. Paul says, endure suffering, share in suffering by following after me. He does not say, you're suffering, be delivered from suffering by following after me. He's not giving Timothy the get out of jail card here. He's not giving Timothy earthly hope. He's giving him eternal hope. He's saying, follow the pattern. The pattern is what got me into this trouble. The pattern is what's getting you into this trouble. Now keep following the pattern. You're suffering, but you're suffering for good cause. Do not be ashamed to suffer for good reason. If we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word, it will result in suffering. The world has never been friendly to the gospel. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will be persecuted. So when we are not persecuted, that ought to be our cause of shame. You want something to be ashamed of? Be ashamed of the fact that you are not living godly enough in Christ Jesus that you're suffering persecution. That's something worthy of shame. Do not be ashamed that we suffer. Do not be ashamed that the world resists our message. Be ashamed when we are so weak, when we are so easily sucked into the world system that we just fit in. When Christianity is popular, it's not Christianity. Following Jesus is referred to as taking up his cross. It's suffering, it's pain, and it's persecution. We long for the good old days when Christianity was the mainstream, when Christianity was generally accepted. Those weren't the good old days. If we are just easily floating along in our world, the Bible tells us we're not living godly in Christ Jesus. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Paul urges Timothy, follow the pattern. The pattern is costly, but the pattern is worth it. How in the world is Timothy supposed to do that? In faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The manner of life of the one following the pattern of sound words is love and faith. We will be opposed by our culture, but it's not because we're just so disagreeable and awful. Sometimes I think Christians think we have to be miserable people to be around in order to be faithful to Christ. 
No, it is the message itself that makes us offensive, not our demeanor. The demeanor of the person following the pattern that Paul has set forth is faith and love like Christ had faith and love. Now, the faith and love of Christ was this balance. Christ was not always nice. He was not always little Jesus, meek and mild. He was a guy with a whip throwing people out of the temple. There are times for boldness, but he was also a gentle person who would eat with sinners, who would ask the Pharisees for the one who is without sin to catch the first stone at the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was loving. Jesus was faithful. And the one who follows the pattern of sound words will follow that pattern as well. We will be characterized by our faith, by our confidence in God, which allows us to take risks knowing he is in control. And also, we will be characterized by the love which Jesus Christ so demonstrated. But there is also great hope in this text. Because we do this in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, but as Christians, we also have Christ Jesus in us. We are following after him, but he is indwelling us. We are in Christ. Faith and love are in Christ, but so are we. Not only are these attributes in Jesus, Jesus himself is in us. So the one who follows Paul's pattern of sound words will do so with confidence, endurance, and love. He will exalt God. He will resist sin. He will speak as God would speak. But he will do so with love and care for others just as the ultimate pattern Jesus himself did. So Paul urges Timothy to follow the pattern he urges Timothy to share in suffering. He also urges Timothy to guard the deposit. Guard the deposit. Verse 14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. A really neat literary device Paul uses here. Go back up to verse 12. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul starts by saying, I have confidence that Christ is guarding the gospel in me. Christ is guarding me. Christ himself is doing this work of protecting me. But now he turns to Timothy. He says, just like Christ is guarding you, guard the gospel. The same ferocious protection that Jesus has for his beloved children, we ought have for his gospel. We ought have the same commitment that Jesus has towards us, towards his gospel. Guard the deposit that was given to you. Guard the gospel with the same intensity with which Christ guards us. How do we do that? We commit ourselves to God's authority. We say, God has said it, I will submit to it. In a world that disagrees with God, every existence of the world since the Garden of Eden, in a world that disagrees with God, we say we don't care. We will submit to God even when the world tells us that they don't think God is right. How many times do we hear the language, I can't believe in a God who does this? Well, if he said he did it, we can believe in a God who did this. 
the laws of our world, what we believe to be good and right is submitted to God. He does not submit to our laws. He makes them. Good is good because God said it is good. I don't get to say what God did isn't good. By definition, it is because God did it. We commit ourselves to God's authority. In our secular age, God's authority is under attack. You have no right to tell me what to do. Well, I don't, but God does. And if God says that, I will proclaim it. Don't do what's right because Pastor Jeremy says it's right. Do what's right because God has declared it. All those who say that Christians have no business telling other people how to live their lives, they're exactly right. But if we proclaim what God has said, God has every business dictating what we do with our lives. And so the faithful Christian will guard the deposit. They will be committed to God's authority. This includes both offensive and defensive aspects. You know, there's going to be a consistent, clear witness to the gospel. We understand the gospel and we proclaim it. That's a part of guarding it. But there's also a defensive posture where we recognize the gospel which says all people are sinners and cannot save themselves is going to be offensive to everyone in the world. Because at the very heart of the gospel is the declaration that I am not good enough. And that's going to be offensive. So we must be prepared to be defensive of the gospel. Even though a defense of the gospel may isolate us from the world, even though it may isolate us even from others who claim the name of Christ but are not willing to submit to his authority, we must defend the gospel. This is why sound theology matters. We are given a task of defending the gospel. How can we possibly do that if we don't understand the gospel? How can we possibly do that if anyone who claims the name of Christ can write something and we'll just buy it? We'll just listen to it. We must know what God has taught. We must follow the pattern of sound words. This book is going to go on and it's going to focus on the authority of Scripture. It's going to focus on the need to hear the Word of God and hear it well. And as it makes that transition, we then have a responsibility to listen and to defend the gospel that God has revealed to us. We cannot guard what we cannot identify. If we do not know what the gospel is, how can we possibly guard it? How can we possibly defend it? We must know what God has said in his word. We must do the hard work of learning theology. We don't all need to be PhDs. We don't all need to be writing dissertations defending intricacies of theology. But we all ought to have a good grasp of the fundamentals of the faith. What is the Bible? Who is God? What does God do? What is salvation? What is grace? All of the components of what God has revealed about himself as Christians that cannot be outsourced. You can't just say, well, hopefully I can find someone to ask at the right time. We must all be doing the work. We are called to defend the gospel. Therefore, we must identify the gospel with clarity. This text is filled with imperatives. Fan into flames the gift that was given to you by the laying on hands. Do not be ashamed. Share in suffering. Follow the pattern of sound words. Guard the deposit. This text demands much of us. 
but it ends by giving us some hope. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. As we do these difficult tasks, fan into flames the gift, don't be ashamed of the gospel, don't be ashamed of Paul's suffering, share in suffering, follow the pattern of sound teaching, guard the deposit that was given to us, all these demands, how do we do that? We do that by the Spirit. God has given us a gift which enables our hard work. The Spirit empowers us. It works in our heart to change our affections. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't even want to do what's right. But the Spirit works in us and creates in us those desires, those appetites and affections that are necessary to be obedient. The Spirit works in us and gives us confidence, not confidence in our own abilities, not confidence that we've studied enough or learned enough or know enough or are good enough or talented enough, but confidence in the one who is able to keep us and the one who we have believed in. The Holy Spirit works that confidence in us so that we can then step out in faith. In sports, confidence is so crucial. I'm just I'm bad at basketball. I haven't played very much in years. But when you give me the ball, I could be wide open and I might take the shot and I have about a 10% chance of hitting the rim. I'm not very good at all. And that lack of confidence then makes you overthink everything that you're doing. You see it when a great athlete gets the yips. I think it was Chuck Knobloch, the Yankees second baseman back in the day. He just kind of forgot how to throw to first base, which is kind of a big deal when you're a second baseman. And it really crippled his career. There are some pitchers in baseball today, they can't throw to first base. And so if you can't throw to first base, you think that runner's going to stay very close to the base? No, he's going to go way off the base. He's going to try and steal because confidence has this terrible effect on us when we don't have confidence. We feel crippled. We don't know what to do. Yet the Holy Spirit works in us in creating confidence, not in our abilities, but confidence in God himself. The Holy Spirit works in us by illuminating the word of God to us. The Holy Spirit, as we open God's Word, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, He illuminates it. He helps us to understand. And in fact, the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, would also include the work of the Spirit that's already been done in revealing the Word of God to us. So as we struggle to do these things, fan into flames, don't be ashamed, share in suffering, follow the pattern, guard the deposit, as we do those things, what a great encouragement and hope that we do those things by the Spirit who has been given to us by God's grace. We'll close this section very briefly by looking at verses 15 through 18. Paul gives Timothy a couple examples, both good and bad. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. All right, so the first example is a bad example. All who are in Asia, turned away from him. Paul suffered and people abandoned him. They've turned their back on him. What a ministry Paul has. He accomplishes so much. He spends years sharing the gospel. He has great success. Yet here at the end of his life, says, all who are in Asia have abandoned me. And this is a warning to Timothy. Don't rest securely that you're good enough that you're not going to be one of these people. Timothy apparently knew Phagellus and Hermogenes. 
Paul just references them to him. He apparently knew them. And at some point, they were following Paul too. At some point, they were sharing in suffering with Paul. There's not really any long stretches of Paul's ministry where there's no suffering. All right, so these guys suffered with Paul as well. But here at the end, they've turned their back on him. And Paul, writing to Timothy, is stirring him up, saying, you can do this too. You can turn your back. So commit to sharing and suffering by the Spirit. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered in Ephesus. There's some debate here about Onesiphorus. It's possible just by the language Paul is using that Onesiphorus has died at this point. Remembering him before, that would make a little more sense with Paul saying, everyone has abandoned me, but here's this guy who hasn't abandoned me. Perhaps he has died. And so Paul gives a kind of positive example to Timothy. Timothy, make your choice. You can be like Phagellus and Hermogenes, or are you going to be like Onesiphorus? Share in suffering. Be like Onesiphorus. We can be motivated both by the positive and negative examples here. We ought not have confidence in ourselves because we might be like Hermogenes and Phagellus. But we can have confidence in God because he might make us like Onesiphorus. We can be like Onesiphorus because God's work of grace is at work in us. As Christians, we have been given much. And Paul reminds us of that in this text. The gospel of God's grace, putting death to death, bringing life to life. Not because of anything that God sees in us, but because of his good purposes of grace. So we have been given everything. Therefore, much is demanded of us. But even as we meet those demands, we can meet them with confidence and the faithfulness of God. God who will deliver us. God who will bring to completion what he began. God who is at work in us. So Christians, we have to know the gospel. If the motivation for suffering is the gospel, we must know the gospel in order to be motivated. We have to know what causes us to suffer. Then we have to believe the gospel. We have to live that life with confidence, as Paul says. Confidence in the one whom we have believed and the one who is able to keep us, the one who guards us. And we have confidence in him. So we know the gospel, but then we believe the gospel. And as a part of belief in the gospel, we also live the gospel. Believing the gospel and refusing to live it is simply a sign that we don't actually believe it. And so we believe the gospel and it changes how we live. We endure suffering. We share in suffering. We are not ashamed. We fan into flames the gift that God has given us. We follow the pattern of Paul's life and teaching. We guard the deposit of the gospel because we know the gospel. We believe the gospel. We live the gospel. God and his grace knows how easily we forget this. And he's given us words that communicate the gospel to us. 
He's given us words that clarify it. We ought to be able to read Paul's little sanctified rabbit trail here talking about the grace of God and salvation. And we ought to feel encouraged and strengthened for obedience, encouraged and strengthened to suffer. He's given us words. He's given us examples of others around us who are a great cloud of witnesses who give testimony to the fact that God is faithful, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 12. But God also gives us something we can touch, something we can feel, and that we will celebrate this morning in communion. You see, if we're supposed to suffer well because of the gospel, what a wonderful, gracious gift of God that he makes the gospel visible to us when as a church together we remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ in communion. This observance this morning ought to be fueling our fire. It ought to be what we can look back at as we are called to suffer this week. When we're at work and we have a simple choice between doing nothing and doing what's right. When we have an opportunity to share the gospel and we have to choose, well, maybe this person is going to look down on me or maybe they're going to believe. I don't know. We can look back at the very tangible reminder of what Jesus has accomplished in his gospel that we observe this morning in communion. Because we forget. Christ has given us many tools to remember. So this morning, we observe together. So we observe communion. Let me again stress that sin in our lives does not necessarily mean we should not partake of communion. Don't excommunicate yourself from the church. But sin and our lies ought to compel us ever more to be reminded of the grace which God has shown for us. Not that we take our sin lightly. Not that we say, oh good, I can sin. Let sin abound that grace may abound more. Paul says, God forbid. May it never be. Yet, if we have sin in our life, may this reminder of the tremendous costliness of our sin and the grace of God that has been shown on us, may that propel us to repent of our sin this morning. May we examine ourselves before we partake that we are responding correctly to what God has done for us, that we are fanning into flames, that we are not ashamed, that we are sharing in suffering, that we are following the pattern, that we are guarding the deposit. May that be fueled by this reminder of the God of grace who gave his body and blood for us. So at this time, I invite you to come forward. We practice close communion. You do not need to be a member of our church to partake. We only ask that you are a believer in Christ, that you have trusted in Christ for your salvation. So come forward, gather the communion, return to your seats. We'll take a few minutes to examine ourselves as Paul encourages in 1 Corinthians 11, which time we'll partake all together of the Lord's Supper.